This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. If you have not listened to the previous chapters, please do so. We are releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, lilac wine. Chapter 6. Robert settled down in a lumpy chair at the Gem Theater, a growler of vital vice he had purchased at Conrad's hidden under his shirt. Not that this deception mattered, really. The Gem was not one of the fancier movie theaters in the Loop area. In fact, it had been closed down for a while last year due to objections involving the dancing performed at the nightly vaudeville shows. The Gem was one of seven theaters closed for a time on South State Street, due to the overzealous crusading of Mrs. Guy Blanchard and her Political Equality League. Nothing but a bunch of upper-crust, uptight North Shore tea toddlers, thought Robert. Living for so long in Evanston, he knew their type. Quick to judge others and quick to close their eyes when looking in the mirror. The dancing girls understood. When Mrs. Blanchard publicly accused the girls at the gym of being drug fiends. One dancer retorted in the Chicago Tribune that if Mrs. Blanchard wanted to find drug fiends, she should look to the society homes on the North Shore. Nothing could be closer to the truth, and Robert knew that these same people who were crusading against the morally corrupting nature of motion pictures were the first to be waving the flag proudly and urging young men to die on the battlefields of France fucking hypocrites. Several of these types stood on the street outside the movie houses on Lower State every night, urging people not to enter the filthy dens of sin and debauchery. Tonight, there seemed to be more people than usual. At the gem, under a large picture of a muscle dance woman coyly raising her dress and displaying her thigh, stood a rather uptight-looking man handing out printed brochures courtesy of the Women's Church Federation, another group bent on closing vaudeville and movie houses throughout the city. They had a success earlier when the nearby village of Winnetka banned commercial films and vaudeville shows within their city limits. When that happened, Robert vowed never to step foot into Winnetka. Not that he had ever been to Winnetka before. This was all the more reason not to go. The Loop was home to over 20 movie houses, and Robert had visited each one more than once. Movies were big business, and many of the theaters changed their films on a daily basis. One of the first things he did before starting work at the Piano Factory every morning was to turn to the feature films in the Loop section of the Tribune, just to see what was playing and if he should ration a nickel for that evening's entertainment. His favorite theater was the Colonial on Randolph. It had superb acoustics and was generally well-kept. It was one of the larger movie houses in the Loop and did good business, 
even though it was the site of one of the worst theater disasters in history. In 1903, when it was known as the Iroquois Theater, a fire broke out and pandemonium spread through the standing-room-only crowd. People were trampled as they tried to exit the locked doors to the lobby. Others suffocated in the intense smoke and heat. Although the theater was billed as being absolutely fireproof, over 600 people died that day, more than those who died in the Great Fire of 1871. So much for absolutes. That's what happens when people get too cocky, thought Robert, which is why he had no patience for the people who stood outside the gem, begging him to think of his soul before entering. These are people who could probably use a good dose of hoochie-coochie dancing. The Gem was a rather small theater with seating for just over 400 people. It was warm and smelled of booze, urine, and sweat. The dancers had been through for an afternoon show, and a man was rumpled in a corner seat of the theater, passed out. Probably the source of the piss odor, Robert reckoned. Other patrons sat here and there, talking loudly. Others were walking through the aisles looking for seats, the crowd was mostly men, as women were more likely to patronize the respectable theaters to the north. The women who were in the audience were working, so to speak, and sometimes conducted their business right there in the darkness of the theater. Although movies were not the main attraction at most of the houses on Lower State, Robert, in fact, was there not for the dancers, but for The Cure a Charlie Chaplin comedy that was set to kick off seven acts of vaudeville and burlesque. He didn't know if he was going to stay for the entire evening of entertainment as he had tickets on the Illinois Central for the following morning and needed to be at Central Station by 7.30. But he had specifically come to this theater to see Charlie Chaplin. Although the film had played last week at another theater, he was unable to make that screening, and he wanted to catch the show before boarding the train to Iowa. Robert had become a fan of Chaplin from the moment he saw his new job back in 1915. That film was Chaplin's first for SNA Studios and was his only film to be made completely in Chicago. Located in the uptown neighborhood on Argyle Street, SNA Studios had been one of the leading movie studios in the country, making films in Chicago for the last eight years or so. In fact, SNA was the training ground for many of the nation's top performers, Chaplin, Francis Bushman, Bronco Billy Anderson, and Gloria Swanson, to name a few. Unfortunately for SNA, those stars quickly left for more lucrative contracts in California. Although they built another studio there in the more conducive weather of the West Coast, SNA was quickly getting crowded out by larger, more heavily financed ventures. Consequently, the Chicago branch of the studio was losing influence. Last year, rather than spend a day working in the factory, Robert lurked near the studio, hoping to catch a glimpse of a star or two. He was also hoping to find a job with SNA. Neither was to be but at least he was able to watch the filming of a scene on Ashland Avenue. He found out later that the film was entitled The Misleading Lady, and he eagerly awaited its release in order to watch that one scene on the big screen. Although a very short scene, basically several characters walking down the street, Robert felt as he was sitting there in the theater that he had a special connection to that picture. It made him 
feel different. When the lights dimmed at the gym, Robert pulled out the growler of Edelweiss and downed a mouthful. Unlike the larger theaters in the loop that sometimes had full orchestra accompaniment to the features, the gym only had a lone piano player for the movies. The band that played during the vaudeville portions of the show took their breaks during the pictures. Unfortunately, the piano was sometimes not enough to drown out the moans and groans from the darkest corners of the auditorium. That didn't matter to Robert, though. He wasn't there for the music or anything else. When that small screen flickered and the title card appeared, he became lost in the images. Over the last couple of years, Robert had grown accustomed to Chaplin in his familiar costume. Bowler, dark coat, oversized shoes, flexible cane, and that small, twitchy mustache. That persona was well-established in such films as The Tramp and Police. In fact, that persona made Chaplin famous, and Chaplinitis had taken over the city, according to the papers. Chaplin impersonators could often be found in the parks and along the shopping district of North State. Movie houses often hired them to stand outside under the marquees whenever Chaplin films were playing. However, this film was slightly different from the onset. Chaplin was not in his familiar frayed jacket, but in a respectable white coat. He was now wealthy and drunk. Not the true tramp of past films. Being led here and there by an attendant at a sanitarium, familiar antics follow. Charlie is drunk and caught in the endless turning of a revolving door, while he pretends to bathe at the pool and avoid the overzealous masseuse. The alcohol in his suitcase is discovered in his room and thrown out the window. It lands in the mineral spring, and all who drank from it find themselves drunk as well. But in the end of this film, Charlie actually gets the girl, which usually didn't happen. That was what Robert liked, the fact that Charlie, an ordinary man, usually a tired and forlorn tramp, winds up at the end of the film just as he was in the beginning. Sure, he might be alone, walking in solitude as the picture fades, but you know one thing. This is not the end. The tramp is the eternal optimist. Brushing off the dust, he simply walks to the next adventure, whatever that may be. Charlie waddles towards the camera, twitching his mustache. Edna Perviance, the leading lady in all of Chaplin's films, smiles at his resolve just as he unwittingly steps forward into the mineral pool and disappears under the water. Laughter erupted from the small crowd at the gym, followed by scattered applause as the screen went dark. Robert smiled and took a deep breath. The film was somewhat satisfying. However, it was strange for him to see Chaplin out of his true tramp character. After all, that was what he was expecting to see. As he considered his next option, the house lights came up and he could hear a muffled commotion from the lobby. He could either stay for part of the vaudeville act or grab some food at a nearby chop suey joint. The noise from the lobby got louder. As Robert stood to leave, the doors to the rear of the theater suddenly opened and crowds of people streamed into the aisles. 
There came to be a rather excited feeling in the air as the lights on the stage rose and people clamored for seats. Suddenly, the auditorium was packed with eager patrons and Robert was pushed back down into his seat. A man reeking of whiskey stepped over him to occupy the vacant space on his opposite side. Did you hear who's dancing tonight? He asked. Robert shook his head. May Mills. May Mills was a notorious muscle dancer who was arrested last year after a particularly lewd dance down the street at the Gaiety Theater. She was the star witness at the trial of the theater's manager who was charged with keeping a disorderly house by allowing immoral dance. Famously, May took the stand and demonstrated her dance to a packed courtroom. Ladies and gentlemen, shouted a middle-aged man at the stage as the band took their seats in the pit. Tonight we have for your viewing, straight from the follies of pleasure, Miss May Mills. The band belted out a hoochie-coochie tune as heads turned to the back of the theater. The house lights went out and the crowd sat for a moment in the dark. A lone bright spotlight came up, illuminating a woman dressed in red, white, and blue metallic tassels, stepping into the aisle, her arms held above her head. As she slumbered down the aisle to the music, her fingers seductively caressed the heads of the patrons sitting on the ends of the rows. She took long steps, and with each, her dress revealed more of her upper leg and thigh. Halfway down the aisle, she turned and pulled off the mid-portion of her dress and threw it to the audience, revealing her naked abdomen, red tassels hanging from her breasts. Raising her arms above her head, she then shook her entire body, starting first with her legs, then moving up to her stomach, which undulated with the music in a mesmerizing muscle dance. There were catcalls and cheers. The dancer turned and climbed the steps to the stage, posing seductively while raising the hem of her dress, revealing a garter that sparkled in the light. Once on stage, May spun, turning her back to the audience and bent forward, raising her rear in the air, which she shook as well for the jeering crowd. Men stood and hollered. Some yelled for her to take it all off. May will be back later tonight, said the theater manager as May turned back towards the crowd, blowing kisses into the air. That was just a little taste of things to come. The crowd hollered. Feet stomped the floor, sending a rumble through the entire auditorium. Robert had never seen a crowd at the gym before. How the management of the gym was able to secure May Mills, he was not sure. There was so much commotion that he failed to hear the whistles at first. Most of the crowd was oblivious when the back door swung open and Chicago police officers poured into the theater batons at the ready. Robert assumed that the raid was in response to the dance in the aisle. May Mills stood with a surprised look on her face as the theater manager quickly placed a coat over her shoulders. But the police were not there because of the dance, it turned out. They were conducting a slacker raid. All right, all right, all of you, yelled one of the officers. Produce your registration cards. 
The officers lined the aisles, and when the crowd realized what was happening, several tried to bolt. One man leaped over a row and ran to the back of the stage. An officer grabbed his shirt, throwing him off balance. There was a wump of the baton as it hit flesh. Produce your blue cards! The deadline for registering for the draft had passed several nights ago, and cities all over the country were cracking down hard on those who failed to register. Police Chief Schutler was determined to get every slacker in Chicago registered in raids such as this had been occurring all over the city, especially in saloons, restaurants, and cheap hotels. Men produced their registration cards. Those who didn't were seized and pulled from the theater. Some complained that they forgot their cards. Others feigned ignorance. A mustached policeman pointed his baton at Robert. You, show me your blue card. Robert's heart leapt. He didn't have a registration card. Registration was only for people aged 21 to 30. Robert was not yet 20. I don't have one. I'm 19, he explained. The officer stepped forward and jabbed the end of the baton into Robert's chest. 19, huh? This was an excuse he heard quite often. Robert was sure of that due to the way the officer squinted his eyes and examined him from top to bottom. What are you doing here? I was just here for the film. The officer laughed, knowing full well what was going on in the auditorium just prior to the raid. Get out of here, Sonny. If I see you here again, I'll have you arrested. Robert put his hat quickly onto the top of his head, giving a quick tip of the brim to the officer. Thank you, he muttered, as he turned swiftly for the door. The officer made a motion to the man guarding the door, and Robert soon found himself in the lobby and then out into the pleasant June evening. Few people were out on State Street, as news of the raid no doubt sent people indoors. Robert stood for a moment on the sidewalk under the flashing lights of the gem, not knowing what to do. That was a strange feeling. For here he was, his last night in Chicago for who knows how long, and he was at a loss as what to do next. Robert thought about heading back to his room at the Leland. Instead, he passed the hotel and continued down Wabash. As he walked through the streets, under the elevated tracks, down dark alleys, he found himself in front of Bishop Pianos, the one place where he spent the most time over the last three years. It was his true home. A crudely made out-of-business sign painted in his uncle's script hung in the window of the showroom floor. Inside it was empty, but he could still almost smell the sawdust and varnish. A train rattled overhead as Robert looked at himself in the reflection. He had on his father's bowler, which he had retrieved from the house in Evanston earlier in the day. There he collected a suitcase for his trip and, most of all, memories. His father's hat he had found in the closet with the suitcase. It still had the ticket stub in the band. He turned the brittle paper over in his fingers a couple of times before returning it to its rightful place in the brim. The hat smelled like his father, even after all these years. Jockey Club Aftershave. (laughs) 
He saw some of his father in that reflection in the window now. The hat looked strange on his head as the bowler was gradually losing its place in popular fashion to the more casual straw boater or the Hamburg. There was something comforting about that hat, however. He straightened his posture and fixed his jacket. Then he tipped his hat to his reflection. And he realized something as he pondered the days ahead. He had become the tramp he so loved from the movies. He smiled as he twitched an imaginary mustache. Pointing his feet outward, he bent his knees and waddled a little, watching his reflection and imagining himself in a movie. Walking back and forth a few times on the sidewalk, he imagined the window, a giant screen in a darkened theater. He stopped and turned towards himself once again. Standing there for a minute or two, he pondered his reflection, which was ghost-like, translucent, to the vacant piano showroom. He sighed. Then, with a lift of his heels, he tipped his hat one more time, turned, and waddled all the way back to his hotel. that was chapter six of Lilac Wine, a novel in progress that I am releasing chapter by chapter, week by week. And I have to say, so far, that is the longest chapter that I've had. And it's also my favorite so far. I loved everything about that chapter, reading it, researching it, writing it. In our last chapter, last week, we were in Abelia's Garden in Iowa, and uh, there was chaos there. A bunch of Art's dogs came in, and uh, it's the one place where she considered at home. And so this chapter puts Robert in a similar situation. Movie theaters are his home, and of course, we get a raid. The police storm the raid, and... Everyone thought it was because of Miss May Mills, a notorious muscle dancer at the time, but no, it was really because of the slackers. That's right. Slacker raids were a thing. The country had just declared war, and there was the Selective Service Act, and they were cracking down on people between the ages of 21 and 30 who hadn't registered yet for the draft. And so they came into the Gem Theater. The thing I really enjoyed about this chapter is the research and um, kind of setting things in real places, in real times, as much as I could. Most of the action takes place in the Gem Theater. Yes, that's a real theater on South State Street. And it was a theater that was known for its kind of rowdy, uh, burlesque and vaudeville shows, as most of the theaters were like on South State Street. Miss May Mills um, was a muscle dancer, and there were many of them in Chicago. It was a very popular thing. Muscle dancing is basically belly dancing. 
And it really gained popularity, you know, two decades prior with the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition in 1893. Little Egypt was there and she danced a seductive dance, a belly dance, basically. And soon that kind of uh, exotic sound became a pop cultural phenomenon. The most common song to go along with muscle dancing, belly dancing, burlesque dancing, whatever you want to call it, was called on the streets of Cairo. Na, 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 na. That was written in the late 1890s, and it was everywhere. And that's the song we heard in that episode. Mae Mills, she was in the paper several times because she had been arrested. She was also the star witness in the defense of a theater owner, the Gaiety Theater, actually. And he also had the Follies of Pleasure burlesque show. He was arrested in October of 1916, and Mae Mills was called as a star witness. And just as I had read, she um, proceeded to do one of her dances in a packed courtroom. In fact, in the, I've got it right here, the October 18th, 1916 edition of the Chicago Tribune, there's a headline, Court Smiles on Walking the Dog. Burlesque queen dances before judge to disprove indecency charge. And this is what it says, a petite brunette stepped to the judge's bench, tossed her head, flashed a smile to the jury, then threw off her heavy outer cloak, and in a thrice was walking the dog and doing other syncopated steps about the small enclosure in a dance to a ragtime accompaniment sung by herself. <laughs> and so, yeah, so she, that's Mae Mills. And uh, Mrs. Guy Blanchard, real person, she wanted to close all of those theaters down. Um, they often handed out literature outside the theaters and so forth. And, and here's Robert, not really too much into the burlesque part of the dancing and the theater experience, but he just loved the movies, especially Charlie Chaplin. You know, Charlie Chaplin is a big, big influence in his life, and Charlie Chaplin is one of my uh, favorites as well. And like I said, I kind of drew on a lot of my experiences for, for both Robert and Abelia, and for me, I, I love movies and I love movie history. And speaking of Chaplin, The Cure is actually a great film. It did play at the Gem Theater and it's playing on our website as well. I have a link up for it. So just go to lilacwinenovel.com and you can watch The Cure by Charlie Chaplin. And... Robert would often go to SNA Studios to see if he could get a job, maybe get into a movie. Uh, that happened to me. My claim to fame back in 1985, I was a senior and I wanted to be in movies. I was in theater and so forth. So I had registered at a bunch of agencies and I got a call one day to be in a new movie by John Hughes. And that movie, of course, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And so I was an extra in that movie, got paid 50 bucks. You can barely see me, though. I am in the scene when the nurse comes to get Sloan out. 
And if you see a hand and a foot in the lower left-hand corner of the screen, that's me. Yeah, so just like Robert, who you know, watched a scene and then sat in a movie to see that scene in the movie, that's, you know, that's something that uh, I experienced too, I have to say. So the war is you know, quickly becoming a very real and life-changing thing, and it's, it's hitting Robert. It's going to hit Abelia soon, and that's going to be uh, something that's going to be coming up in you know, chapters here. So thank you for listening. If you like this chapter, if you like this series, please do me a favor and go to iTunes and write a review. Now, I'd like to get some more listeners and your reviews really, really help. I am in the process of getting some shirts made, so I'll be putting those up on the website soon. You can go to lilacwinenovel.com and find some more information. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well. Tell your friends about this podcast, especially those friends who like Chicago history, who like historical fiction. Um, let them know about uh, this podcast. That would be greatly appreciated. And like always, I have a message board up on our website. If you have any questions at all, you want to make a comment, a suggestion, please go to lilacwinenovel.com to do that. Would love, love, love to get your you know, your responses, your critiques, your opinions about this podcast. Next week, we are back in Lily Springs. And uh, until then, I am Bruce Janu. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>